Thank you all for demonstrating that all scripture is profitable. Thank you all for demonstrating that all scripture is profitable. After that, we should probably pray. And I got a couple things for us to pray about. One is uh, we are, I hope next week to announce where we are in our capital campaign. It looks very encouraging so far. But about a third of you have not turned in your uh, commitment cards for the coming year. That will Thank you all for demonstrating that all scripture is profitable. Thank you all for demonstrating that all scripture is profitable. Good for your heart. A uh, cup of coffee a week um, would be a great starting point. That doesn't mean you actually literally bring a cup of coffee a week to the church. Not helpful. But if you could get someone else to buy a cup of coffee for you a week, take that money and give it towards our capital campaign would be tremendously helpful. And if you can turn those in this week, uh, that would be great. You can leave them uh, at the offering plate in the, in the back after the services or you can uh, bring them by the office, uh, email them in, carrier pigeon, whatever works for you. Okay. The second thing we need to pray about together as a church family is our sister Jen in Africa serving the Lord there is still in prison as a result of a traffic fatality that she was involved in a year ago. She's awaiting trial. She's been in prison for about a month awaiting her trial. The trial will be Tuesday morning. And so I'd like for us to bow together and, and pray for her. So let's pray, church. Father, in your kindness, use these simple gifts toward such a mundane thing as paying our building off to guard our hearts from loving the stuff of this world more than we love you. That would make us hoarders rather than being generous people. So help us. And I pray for each one of us that the faithfulness we have in this would not only bless the church, but will return blessing upon us and our families. And Lord, we think of Jen, and our hearts are burdened. Uh, to imagine her suffering is beyond most of us, but we give you thanks that you are with her and you will not fail nor forsake her. We thank you for the five believers she's in prison with and for the two non-believers in her cell as well. We thank you that her health is gaining back from the malaria and the parasites. Lord, thank you for these small kindnesses. Thank you for those who feed her and serve her every day. Um, in your name. God, we pray for Tuesday. We pray that justice would be done and that mercy would triumph and that she might go free. Though that outcome seems unlikely, God, you, you are the God of unlikely outcomes. And we ask for your name's sake and for our sister's care that you would do that for her. Um, and now, Lord, be kind to us. Exalt your son in our eyes so that we might worship and follow him this season with glad hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, Thanksgiving was only eight days away when Michelle, who teaches the Bible in a midweek children's program in Nashville, Tennessee, decided to ask her preschoolers about the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. She thought it would be effective to have the class playfully correct some wrong ideas about Thanksgiving. And so she started this way. She says, now let me see Thanksgiving. That's the day when we think about all the stuff we have and how we want more things than anybody else has and how we don't care about any else but ourselves. And, and the children, of course, started to say, no, no, no. And one little boy stood up to set her straight and he called out, 
That's not Thanksgiving, Miss Michelle. That's Christmas. <laughs> and so today, what we would like to do as a church family is thoroughly confuse Thanksgiving and Christmas, or at least thoroughly intermingle them so that we have a chance today just to do one thing, to give thanks for the child that is born Christmas morn in light of who he really is, um, in light of what the scriptures say about this Jesus that is born, that we've been singing about this morning, that we've been thinking about, and to kind of restore the supremacy of him to our celebration this season. Because um, it's easy to lose perspective. It's easy to succumb and fall prey to what um, American storyteller Garrison Keillor um, said as he dumbed down Christmas, saying that though you may decide that instead of Christmas carols, you're going to hold hands and breathe in unison, Christmas will still live in the cockles of your heart. Actually, in your neocortex, stored as millions of neuron impulses. It's your brain that sends tears to your eyes when you smell the saffron cookies that your grandma used to make, or you sing Silent Night. So Christmas is, he says, number one, lights, number two, food, number three, song, number four, being with people you like. He says, you need no more. And this morning, I just want to say, oh, we need so much more than food and lights and friends and song, as treasured as those are. We need so much more. We need a Savior who will rescue us, who will give life and hope to us. And so this morning, we just want to think together to give thanks for the birth of the child who is, and we'll look at all these things briefly, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ, the ones who saves us from our sins, the fulfillment of ancient longings, and the one who is God with us. And all of these titles or these descriptions of Jesus are found in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel in the account of Jesus' birth. So um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and as we go through each of these titles, you have a response we're going to have a little liturgy this morning, and you have a response that you make to each of these titles. This is your response. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, okay? From 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul's writing about Jesus there. So, let's practice it. Ready? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Fantastic. Um, Matthew chapter 1, open your Bibles there. We'll dig in and look at Jesus together and give thanks for who he truly is. Now, Matthew starts his, his gospel in a way that's really odd to us. He starts it with a genealogy, a long, fascinating, insightful list of names. You heard our worship team actually sing that genealogy to you. Um, starts with Abraham. It goes to Joseph, the husband of Mary, and it is a list of... This list is an index of lives that God used to bring Jesus to us. Okay. Um, in Jesus' genealogy, there are lives that, or there are names that we would expect to be there. Perhaps names like Abraham and David and the good kings Hezekiah and Josiah. We'd expect to find those names there in the genealogy of the Son of God. But others we find are puzzling, if not downright. Um, shocking, the number of ancestors of Jesus in his lineage that, that render his lineage checkered is stunning. Consider this, Abraham, he, he, was, he lied about his wife, Sarah, called her his sister. 
Jacob was known as the deceiver. Judah slept with Tamar. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon worshipped foreign gods. Rehoboam oppressed God's people. Abijah was not fully devoted to the Lord. Jehoram killed his brothers and forsook the Lord. Uzziah was prideful and leprous. Ahaz sacrificed his own son in fire. Hezekiah was prideful. Manasseh was an idolater and shed innocent blood. And Ammon was an idolater. And these people show up in the line of the Christ. Why are they there? Um, I love the way Dale Bruner puts it. He says that one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestor of Jesus available in order, in turn, to insert them into his record. And so it seems to preach the gospel. The gospel, that is, that God can overcome and forgive sin and can use spoiled and soiled but repentant persons for his great purposes in history. See, this is a stunning display of the sovereign grace of God to show us that the Manasses and the Ahazes of the world, the evil rulers of the world, even our world, are subject to God's unstoppably good I love the way Joseph put it when he talked about his own suffering at the hands of those who wished him harm. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Um, God is using these defective, sometimes wicked people for good to bring about his good plan. Um, and then you also notice in the early verses of the genealogy, there's a handful of names of women in the genealogy, which at this point in history was an extraordinary thing. Women's names are not usually included. You find um, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. We know her to be Bathsheba. All four of those, and then ultimately Mary, um, included in the genealogy. And like I said, it's very, un very unusual that their names are included, especially the names of women like these. Because these, these women all had at least rumors of immorality swirling around them in their life stories. Ruth and then even Mary, the women of remarkable virtue, found themselves in eyebrow-raising circumstances at certain points in their life. Uriah's wife was found in an adulterous affair that led to the murder of her husband. Tamar played the part of a prostitute, even though it may have been for noble reasons. Rahab's sexual exploits became virtually inseparable from her identity. You've got people like Alexander the Great, William the Conqueror, and Rahab the harlot. And so we have a harlot in the lineage of Jesus. A sovereign God chooses carefully whom he will use. And yes, he's chosen these four. He's chosen even a harlot to bring mercy to and mercy through women like this. And not only are they women of somewhat questionable reputation at points, um, they also were associated with or actually were Gentiles. These women are not Jewish in the lineage of the Messiah. They are instead from the nations. And this anticipates that Jesus' birth would be, as old Simon would say, 
uh, Simeon rather, in, in Luke, a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations this child would be. And Jesus himself would say that the good news about him had to be proclaimed to all peoples. But the nub of the genealogy that we want to think about today in terms of what it teaches us about Jesus is found in the very first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And those two titles are given to Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the order is reversed here. David actually comes after Abraham chronologically. And as we go through the genealogy, that's how they'll play out. But in this verse, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And some scholars have suggested that with son of David coming before son of Abraham, Matthew is describing a royal king, the son of David, who would then be sacrificed like what was asked of Abraham concerning his son Isaac atop that mountain. But look at the genealogy with me closely. It starts with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and so on. But it starts with Abraham, whom God covenanted to bless beyond his wildest dreams. And through him, as we'll see specifically through his seed, through his offspring, through his son, all nations would be blessed. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And all these names that come from Abraham down to Jesus are pointing towards the one who will be the son of Abraham, Jesus the Christ. Paul makes it very clear. He writes in Galatians 3, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. The list reveals that Jesus is the son of Abraham, through whom all nations would be blessed. That's why in Revelation we see the promised fulfillment of this, where John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb worshiping. Okay. All peoples. He is our Savior because He is the Son of Abraham. Through Abraham's Son, the blessing was to come not just to Israel, but to all peoples. Now, when you say um, there was a, a son of Abraham in this case, there's, a, there's something that comes to mind immediately in the genealogy. It says, um, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac is um, his second son, the son most famous in Old Testament lore. And his stories in Genesis 22, when you think of the son of Abraham, immediately you would think of Isaac. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told them. Later on it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Jesus is the son of Abraham to whom Isaac pointed that the ram represented, okay? the ram who would be sacrificed for the sins of all peoples. Jesus, who was born on Christmas, is the son of Abraham that brings the blessing to all peoples. Okay. So, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You ready? I'm going to show that. Every time I show it, you're going to say it with me. Okay, you have no excuses. This is the second service. You've had coffee. You've been awake. Ready? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Very good. Now, 14 generations later in this complicated genealogy, we come, do come to King David, who was arguably the high point of the Old Testament. If you were a king in the Old Testament, they said you were a king who followed after David in his heart, that was a good king. Um, He was the king by which all kings were measured. David is the king to whom God promised um, that he would always have a son who would reign on the throne for all eternity. In 2 Samuel 7, we read this, um, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, forever, there will be a son of David always and forever on the throne. And the expectation of the people when you talked about the son of David was that he would come and be their deliverer who would set them free from bondage and oppression. And when you read in the New Testament the encounters that people would have with Jesus, the blind men, for instance, they would cry out to Jesus to be healed and they would call him, son of David, have mercy on me. Because that was associated with his rescue, his deliverance, the bringing of this kingdom where there was no suffering and no sorrow. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is presented as the root of David who has conquered his enemies. He is the long-awaited king who will reign and rule forever, this son of David. And at last he has come. He has been born He is, Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David and all the promises and hopes are being fulfilled in him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Very good. All right, there's another descriptor, yet another descriptor. Um, It's in the opening verse of the book of Matthew. Um, 
closely related to this idea of being the son of David, the long-awaited king. It goes like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that title, Jesus the Christ, it's repeated again at the back end of the genealogy in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then you see it again in verse 17, the next verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation from, to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then we see it again when the birth story starts. Now the birth of Jesus the Christ took place in this way. Okay? Clearly, Matthew is holding up Jesus as the Christ. Okay? And it's a title not a last name, okay? Jesus' last name is not Christ. His father was not Joseph Christ, okay? That's not how it worked. It's a title. It's not a curse word. It's a title. And it's a title that's anchored in the language of the Old Testament. Um, you've heard people talk about the Messiah whom the Jewish people were waiting for. That Messiah comes into the New Testament expression as Christ, and Messiah has the meaning of someone who's anointed by God to perform a special task. It was often used with respect to kings. David, for instance, was the anointed king of Israel. One writer says that the overriding biblical imagery of the word Messiah or Christ is that of a king chosen by God. Often in the Old Testament, God would tell a prophet to go anoint someone and proclaim him king. And the act of anointing with sacred oil emphasized that it was God himself who had ordained a person and given him authority to act as his representative. So when we call Jesus the Christ, we are proclaiming him to be king, God's chosen king who will reign forever. And the Old Testament prophets would write about what this Messiah's reign would be like. And it's beautiful language. Um, Daniel writes about it this way in chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like one like a son of man. Okay, that's, that's language of the, that describes the Messiah. And, the, came, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that describes God as Father, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I realized I had a conversation between services, point of clarity. Uh, one of our uh, moms stopped me and said, uh, my young child was very excited and very con confused that you were preaching about minions today. You kept talking about dominion. Um, not minions, dominion. It means rule, okay? He will rule. As wonderful as minions are, this is more wonderful, okay? The rule of Christ. Um, a couple things I ran across. I'm doing a really delightful Advent reading uh, these days, and it talked, they had a poem in it by a guy named Stephen Phillips, 
called Christ's, the Christ's reign of peace. And he says, and he shall charm and soothe and breathe and bless. The roaring of war shall cease upon the air, falling the failing of tears and all the voices of sorrow. And he shall take the terror from the grave. Okay, this is what his reign will be like. Um, sorrow, war, suffering taken away. We sang it this morning about his love forevermore. That same Advent devotional um, had a picture in it. It looked like this. Uh, it's an image that's used by our brothers and sisters who worship in the Eastern churches, in the Orthodox church. And it's a picture called um, Christ the Pentocrator. It's not language we use in the Western church, our church, to describe Christ very much. But it explained it this way. It's often above um, the entryway to their sanctuary. So when you come in, the image shows Christ holding the Gospels in his left hand and his right hand upraised to bless. Um, it says, as worshipers entered the space, they were reminded that Jesus was the all-powerful king who blesses all, but that he is also the incarnate son of God revealed in the Gospels. Thus, Christ's pantocrator is a perfect image for Advent, Jesus as king and Jesus as incarnate son. When we call Jesus king or Christ, we are calling him king. What does it mean to call someone our king? Okay. It means whatever he says it means, right? Because we are his subjects. We are subject to his will. Um, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited king sent by God. Um, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the Christ. And in verse 18 of our passage, we find another descriptor of Jesus. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It says it again just a verse or two later. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's a teaching that's often called the virgin birth, but there's a miracle before that miracle, and that's the divine conception. Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Don't ask me how. Okay? It's a bona fide miracle. And this is a struggle for some who kind of like to dumb down the supernatural nature of the New Testament. Um, uh, one of the worst cases that I know of is a, a fellow who used to be a bishop. Now I think he's just a heretic. Um, and I don't use that word very often. This man is a heretic. Is John Shelby Spong, uh, Bishop Spong, and he suggests that what happens here is that because he cannot believe the virgin birth, he says Mary was raped. Um, but both Luke and Matthew, and Matthew you see it here clearly twice, and even in the language that's used at the end of the genealogy where he's so careful 
to not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, but Mary's line, it comes through, endorses and teaches this was not a normal birth. This was the way the Spirit of God bore the Son of God into our world. The way that God used to protect and preserve the sinlessness of His Son, the way in which God and man come together so that we would confess that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, Professor Wayne Grudem says that the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send his son into the world as a man. And then he says that if, um, if God, it might could have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and send him to earth without any human parent. But then he wisely says, but then it, wouldn't have been, it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are. And he says, it's also possible that God could have sent him into the world with, no, with two human parents and still somehow preserved his divine nature. But he says, but then it would have been very hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God since his origin was like ours in every way. He says, this helps us understand how God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. Wonder of wonders. I don't know what else to say except thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay. There's more. In verse 21 in our passage, we find his name given by the angel to Joseph. Says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's the explanation of what the name Jesus means. Um, it's rooted in another, again, in Old Testament language. Um, it has to do with um, the name Joshua, um, which means Yahweh saves or God saves. And it comes into the New Testament to us as the name Jesus. And it reflects both who Jesus is and what he does. In the sense that as God, Jesus saves. Only God can save a person or a people from their sins. And so Jesus here is being presented to us as the God who saves Jesus will save us from our sins. That means both that our sins will not be held against us, but it also means we are not held captive to our sins in this life. Because of faith in Christ and the indwelling Spirit, we are not captive to sin anymore. We no longer have to sin as was once our case without Christ. That's the angle this is translated by, by that remarkable Bible translation that I love to quote to you, the Hawaiian pigeon version. This verse is rendered this way. She going born one boy, and you going name him Jesus, because he going to take his people out of the kind of bad stuff they do. Okay? 
He's going to save us from our sins. We don't have to sin anymore. We're not slaves to sin. We have been set free by, by Jesus. Um, and how does Jesus rescue us? Paul writes about it in ways that are helpful. He says in Colossians chapter 1, For in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross, Jesus reconciles us to God. By the blood of the cross, our sins are washed away. This is what it costs to rescue us. The cross is how he did it. He has saved us, his people, from our sins. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. There's another phrase that Matthew uses recurringly when he writes about Jesus' birth. And you find it um, in verses 21 and 20, or 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Quoting the, the prophets from the Old Testament. Um, all this took place. All this stuff took place to fulfill. He puts forth Jesus as the one who fulfills all the prophetic longings and promises of the Old Testament. Of course, specifically, he has in mind here his, his virgin birth, the divine conception. Um, but also, it would seem to encompass, this way of thinking seems to encompass all the events around his birth, even, even the genealogy, which teaches the same truth, that God is sovereign, that he's been working out this plan from the beginning, that all of this took place, all of those names, all of those people took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Um, one writer says, in his genealogy, Matthew shows fulfillment not only of particular promises in the Old Testament, but of the Old Testament as a whole. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament story. And all of this unfolds to fulfill God's promises, to fulfill his mission, to fulfill his good plan. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. God's great redemptive plan will find its fulfillment in this child. And we long for that in Advent. We long for his second return. O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing. Just as Israel would sing it long ago. Paul writes about it. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christ has come to fulfill the longings and the promises of, of the ancient prophets. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay. Let me just touch on one last description 
of Jesus in this, and we've already read it a couple of times. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay? And surely that means God is for us. God is on our side. God is working on our behalf through this man. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, it means so much more than that. It means God. God is with us in this man. That's why we just read what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The writer of Hebrews talks about he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Um, there's a, uh, a really sadly interesting survey that's been done recently by uh, George Barna. And they're charting here um, who do we believe Jesus was. And you've got options. Um, black is God. The next color, white, is only a religious or spiritual leader. And then not sure. Um, I'm not sure which of those is which, but let's just look at God. And it traces him through the generations. So um, the elders, who are a little older than me, 62% believe that Jesus was God. By the time you get around to my generation, the boomers, it drops to 58%. Now, a lot of you are living in the, as Gen Xers, 55% of you all believe that Jesus is God. And the millennials, again, a number of you are millennials, 48%. And the percentages keep dropping and dropping and dropping. And this precious promise, this great hope, those of you who are amongst the millennials, you've got to offer this beautiful hope to your friends. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us, fully God and fully man. Um, all I know to say is thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Okay. Now, I'd like to close with just a way to kind of capsulize when we've talked about Jesus being all these amazing things, especially around his kingship as, as Christ and the son of David and all those other imageries that bring that to mind. It's a video we often show at, uh, at Easter, but it is so, so appropriate that we should think about the wholeness of Christ's life um, at Christmas as well. So watch, watch this, if you would. <laughs> 